Welcome. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And today, we're going to be talking about the parable of the talents and the coming judgment that we will all face. But first, I'm going to begin with a word about a saint whose feast we celebrated on the 16th of this month of November, which, as we know, is particularly dedicated to the Holy Souls in Purgatory. And I'm speaking of St. Gertrude. Medieval Benedictine nun entered eternity back in the year 1334. She's one of only a handful of saints who has the appellation the Great, and she lived the mystic life of the cloister, did many penances, was very devoted to the passion of our Lord, meditated long and often on his passion. Our Lord appeared to her many times. She had a tender love of the Blessed Virgin Mary and especially was devoted to the suffering souls in purgatory for whom she composed a well-known prayer. The prayer of St. Gertrude the Great for the release of soul or to release souls from purgatory. And that reflects the revelations that were given to her uh, as presented in Father Paul O'Sullivan's popular booklet on purgatory called Read Me or Rue It. Father O'Sullivan wrote two booklets on purgatory, Read Me or Rue It and How to Avoid Purgatory. I highly recommend them both, and you can uh, you can actually access them online. You can find uh, uh, online versions at the EWTN website and elsewhere. Now, our Lord showed St. Gertrude a vast number of souls leaving purgatory and going to heaven as a result of this prayer, which she was accustomed to say frequently throughout the day. And the prayer is, Eternal Father, I offer thee the most precious blood of thy divine Son, Jesus, in union with the masses said throughout the world today for all the holy souls in purgatory. Now, a word about this prayer. First, you might be familiar with a popular form of the prayer that adds uh, to those words, these words, for sinners everywhere, for sinners in the universal church, for those in my own home and within my family. That's still considered to be the same prayer, the prayer of St. Gertrude for the release of the souls in purgatory. Secondly, though, based on information that was on an old holy card, that was then reprinted and widely distributed in the Pieta prayer book, it became a matter of popular piety that every time this prayer was recited, uh, uh, 1,000 souls would be released from purgatory. However, that uh, has always been prohibited by the church to, you know, to uh, specify a specific number of souls in that way. But I want to say it does not invalidate the prayer. It, because it doesn't require any, you know, exaggerated claims, however pious, to recommend this prayer as a time-honored and most efficacious prayer for the relief of the holy souls. Father O'Sullivan tells us that all of our prayers for the holy souls will be repaid many times over. And he asks, quote, Who can be in more urgent need of our charity than the souls in purgatory? What hunger or thirst or dire sufferings on earth can compare to their dreadful torments? Neither the poor, nor the sick, nor the suffering we see around us have such an urgent need of our help. Yet we find many good-hearted people who interest themselves in every other type of suffering, but alas, scarcely one who works for the holy souls. Who can have more claim on us? Among them, too, there may be our mothers and fathers, our friends, and near kin. When they are finally released from their pains and enjoy the beatitude of heaven, Far from forgetting their friends on earth, their gratitude knows no bounds. Prostrate before the throne of God, they never cease to pray for those who helped them. By their prayers, they shield their friends from many dangers and protect them from the evils that threaten them. 
So in honor of the month of the Holy Souls, I would like to ask you to join me in taking a moment to pray for the church suffering the litany for the poor souls in purgatory. The petitions are all in the first person, but you please make them your own in the silence of your heart, and then kindly pray the response along with me, which is, My Jesus, mercy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Jesus, thou suffered and died, that all mankind might be saved and brought to eternal happiness. Hear our pleas for further mercy on the souls of my dear parents and grandparents, my Jesus, mercy. My brothers and sisters and other near relatives, my Jesus, mercy. My godparents and sponsors of confirmation, my Jesus, mercy. My spiritual and temporal benefactors, my Jesus, mercy. My friends and neighbors, my Jesus, mercy. All for whom love or duty bids me pray, my Jesus, mercy. Those who have suffered disadvantage or harm through me, my Jesus, mercy. Those who have offended me, my Jesus, mercy. Those whose release is near at hand, my Jesus, mercy. Those who desire most to be united to thee, my Jesus, mercy. Those who endure the greatest sufferings, my Jesus, mercy. Those whose release is most remote, my Jesus, mercy. Those who are least remembered, my Jesus, mercy. Those who are most deserving on account of their services to the church, my Jesus, mercy. The rich, who now are destitute, my Jesus, mercy. The mighty, who are now powerless, my Jesus, mercy. The once spiritually blind, who now see their folly, my Jesus, mercy. The frivolous, who spent their time in idleness, my Jesus, mercy. The poor, who did not seek the treasures of heaven, my Jesus, mercy. The tepid, who devoted little time to prayer, my Jesus, mercy. The indolent, who neglected to perform good works, my Jesus, mercy. Those of little faith, who neglected frequent reception of the sacraments, my Jesus, mercy. The habitual sinners, who owe their salvation to a miracle of grace, my Jesus, mercy. Parents who failed to watch over their children, my Jesus, mercy. Superiors who were not solicitous for the salvation of those entrusted to them, my Jesus, mercy. Those who strove for worldly riches and pleasures, my Jesus, mercy. The worldly-minded who failed to use their wealth and talent for the service of God, my Jesus, mercy. Those who witnessed the death of others but would not think of their own, my Jesus, mercy. Those who did not provide for the life hereafter. My Jesus, mercy. Those whose sentence is severe because of the great things entrusted to them. My Jesus, mercy. The popes, kings, and rulers. My Jesus, mercy. The bishops and their counselors. My Jesus, mercy. My teachers and spiritual advisors. My Jesus, mercy the priests and religious of the Catholic Church, my Jesus, mercy, the defenders of the holy faith, my Jesus, mercy, those who died on the battlefield, my Jesus, mercy, those who fought for their country, my Jesus, mercy, those who were buried in the sea, my Jesus, mercy, those who died of illness, my Jesus, mercy, those who died suddenly in accidents, 
my Jesus, mercy. Those who died without the last rites of the church, my Jesus, mercy. Those who shall die within the next 24 hours, my Jesus, mercy. My own poor soul, when I shall have to appear before thy judgment seat, my Jesus, mercy. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them forevermore with thy saints, because thou art gracious. May the prayer of thy suppliant people, we beseech thee, O Lord, benefit the souls of thy departed servants and handmaids, that thou mayest both deliver them from all their sins and make them to be partakers of thy redemption. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May their souls and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. All right, thank you for, for joining me, for taking a moment to uh, pray for the holy souls in purgatory in a particular way. It's a beautiful litany uh, to the holy souls. I believe you will find it in Read Me or Ruit, and you can find it online elsewhere. Uh, okay, so moving on now, when we come back, we're going to be talking about a tweet from the uh, infamous Father James Martin, who uh, just last week on the 18th of November tweeted about the parable of the talents. Uh, you know, in the parable of the talents, um, a servant, it says, who does not invest his master's money is punished. And he goes on to say that usually the moral, which he puts in scare quotes, the moral is about being prepared or using one's talents, also in quotes. It says then, though the Greek talenton didn't have that meaning. But he said in a proactive or a provocative, rather, minority reading, Barbara Reed, a New Testament scholar, suggests that it is precisely the third servant, the one who fails to invest, who was the intended hero of Jesus' story. Quote, the third servant is the honorable one, only he has refused to cooperate in the system by which his master continues to accrue huge amounts of money while others go wanting. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that he puts scare quotes on the word moral when he's talking about the moral of the story. But there's no square, scare quotes around the word system, <laughs> the system that's being uh, uh, attacked here. Now, correct biblical interpretation is called exegesis, exegesis, which means to draw out that which is in the text. So exegesis is an exposition or an explanation of the text. Now, Dr. Reed, on the contrary, is practicing what is called eisegesis which is what you call it when a reader imposes an interpretation onto the text that's simply not there. Back to the tweet, Father Martin says, Other New Testament scholars suggest the parable must be seen alongside Jesus' other eschatological parables, which are mainly focused on preparedness, for example, the wise and foolish bridesmaids. Professor Reed's interpretation, however, reminds us not only to be sensitive to the original culture in which the parable would have been heard, but also that parables can carry multiple meanings. All right, well, we're going to unpack this little tweet when we get back and take a good long look at the parable of the talents and what the Catholic Church actually teaches about it when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Please, this punch to have you along with us, and we'll be right back with lots more after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, talking about a tweet from Father James Martin, and I'm just going to go over it one more time so that we have it fresh in our minds. On the 18th of November, Father Martin tweeted, In Jesus' parable of the talents, a servant who does not invest his master's money is punished. Usually the moral is about being prepared or using one's talents, though the Greek talenton didn't have that meaning. But in a provocative minority reading, Barbara Reed, a New Testament scholar, suggests that it's precisely the third servant, the one who fails to invest, who was the intended hero of Jesus' story. Quote, the third servant is the honorable one. Only he has refused to cooperate in the system by which his master continues to accrue huge amounts of money while others go wanting, unquote. Other New Testament scholars suggest that the parable must be seen alongside Jesus' other eschatological parables, which are mainly focused on preparedness, for example, the wise and foolish bridesmaids. Professor Reed's interpretation, however, reminds us not only to be sensitive to the original culture in which the parable would have been heard, but also that parables can carry multiple meanings. So tweeted uh, Father Martin. Now, before I begin... Let me first say that understanding the context of the the original culture, the audience to whom Jesus was speaking, and and the the kind of uh, manner of speaking that he was employing, all that is important. And parables can have more, more than one meaning. But it's important to remember that those meanings cannot contradict one another. As I've stated many times over, a contradiction is a nonsense, and this is about, this show is called No Nonsense Catholic. See, a thing cannot be and not be in the same sense at the same time. This principle of non-contradiction is one of the building blocks of rational thought. So obviously one cannot legitimately hold that the parable of the talents may simultaneously support two contradictory interpretations because that would make Jesus the author of nonsense. And that's a blasphemy. Also, let me say that I personally hold a number of what you would call minority positions regarding the Holy Bible. For example, that Matthew wrote the gospel that bears his name. That uh, he wrote that gospel first, before the others. That he wrote originally in Aramaic. I believe that the so-called, quote-unquote, synoptic problem, that is, how the striking similarities and differences amongst Matthew, Mark, and Luke Uh, to explain that, does not require recourse to one or several hypothetical source documents for which there is not a shred of objective evidence. I think that the the so-called synoptic problem can be readily solved by demonstrating the mutual dependence of the three Gospels, one upon the other. Now, what makes these minority positions today is that a majority of those who currently inhabit the ivory tower of modern biblical scholarship hold that Mark wrote first and embrace one or another uh, hypothetical multiple source theories regarding the authorship of the Gospels. Being people that live in a world of, of reports and committees and, and, and redaction, they you know, kind of project that onto the authorship of the Gospels. The point is that these were not always minority positions. Um, you know, the, the, the majority positions that I, I just mentioned uh, you know, for the most part, didn't exist prior to the 19th century. I mean, the, the idea that Mark wrote first goes back to the 18th century, but it didn't get any traction, really, 
for 100 years until, you know, the, the whole synoptic problem thing came along in the 1860s. So in other words, for the first 19 centuries of Christian history, uh, these were not even minority positions because they were not anyone's position. You know, and the, what, what I call a minority position today is actually a reflection of the constant tradition of the church and the authoritative declarations of her magisterium. Now, Dr. Reed's minority reading, in contrast, her minority reading, quote-unquote, of the Parable of the Talents, doesn't reflect any tradition at all. Uh, it, it's merely a fabrication, seeking to align the Gospels with uh, left-wing politics, modern ones at that. And her interpreta- interpretation stands alone without the benefit of any context beyond her own progressive biblical scholarship. And as the old saying goes, a text out of context is the subtext for a pretext. You know, and it's not only out of context with the clear teaching of Jesus in the gospel, as we shall soon see, but it's also out of the cultural context as well. And Father Martin rather smugly tells us that Reed's novel interpretation, quote, reminds us to be sensitive to the original culture in which the parable would have been heard. But as is the tendency of uh, progressives, Dr. Reed's done precisely the opposite. Like the old saying goes, stream runs clearer, closer to the source. But modern scholars tend not to believe that Jesus ever said any of the words attributed to him in Matthew's gospel, nor that Matthew even wrote the gospel that bears his name. And as regard the teaching of the early church, they like to pretend that we don't know anything about it. We know nothing at all about the early Christians except whatever pet theory they decide to project onto them. In other words, they reject tradition. As St. Paul prophesied they would in 2 Timothy, For there shall be a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires they will heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and will indeed turn away their hearing from the truth, but will be turned to fables. See, the truth is the cultural context of the New Testament is the community which our Lord Jesus founded, that is, the Catholic Church. And one need only refer to the golden chain of St. Thomas Aquinas to discover that context. The, uh, the Catena Orea, or the Golden Chain, is a line-by-line commentary of the four Gospels entirely compiled uh, by Thomas from the collected writings of the Fathers of the Church. And this is what informs the authentic understanding of the parable of the talents. Father Martin said in his tweet, Other New Testament scholars suggest that the parable must be seen alongside Jesus' other eschatological parables, which are mainly focused on preparedness or using one's talents for example, the wise and foolish bridesmaids. Well, this is, this is disingenuous. Far from being merely the suggestion of other scholars, it is the constant tradition of the church, which goes back to the gospel itself. It's a rank sophism to suggest that a novel and private opinion is on the same footing with sacred tradition, as if there was an equivalence between a, a private opinion and the teaching of the church. But that is what he would like you to think. Because if biblical scholarship can reduce to a, be reduced to a matter of opinion, in this case, her opinion against mine, well, then the arguments that I'm about to make would be easily dismissed. After all, Dr. Reed has a PhD from Catholic University of America and holds a chair at the Catholic Theological Union, and who the heck am I to some convert with a podcast? And I have nothing against higher education, and because for one thing, according to G.K. Chesterton, without education we are in horrible and deadly danger of taking educated people seriously. But the point is that it's not my opinion against hers. It's her opinion against the constant tradition of the church. It's her opinion against origin, 
and Augustine and Jerome and Hilary and Bernard of Clairvaux and Thomas Aquinas, etc., etc. There is no comparison. Think of the old song, One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. You know, think about it. If this was really, if her idea about that the, the parable of the talents is really an indictment against capitalism and not about preparing for the judgment and making good use of the gifts that God gives you is the way everybody has always understood it. If that's what Jesus meant, if that's what his first hearers understood, then why doesn't anybody believe that now? Why isn't there any evidence for it at all? You know, at, at what point in history did the entire body of Christ, East and West, reject Jesus' real original meaning and, and, or, or suffer collective amnesia and decide to go with this completely different interpretation? Where's the evidence for that? Well, there isn't any. Now, let's consider the biblical context. Right? We're talking about context. In Matthew 24, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple and then the calamities that will precede the Great Tribulation, then the coming of the Son of Man, i.e. the second coming, followed by the lesson of the fig tree, the unknown, unknown day and hour, the faithful and unfaithful servant. And it continues in chapter 25 with the parables of the wise and foolish virgins and the parable of the talents. Now, according to the you know, traditional commentaries on Holy Scripture, after our Lord delivered the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, he also spoke another parable to the same effect showing the necessity of making good use of the time and talents confided to us. Now, if, as Father Martin maintains, of course, he's careful not to say that this is his opinion, but merely the opinion of this uh, Dr. Reed. <clears throat> but if the parable of talents is typically, as he says, seen alongside Jesus' other eschatological parables, it's primarily because that's where the inspired author placed it. In other words, because the proper context for the parable of the, uh, the talents and the wise and foolish virgins is precisely amongst our Lord's eschatological teachings, which is where we find it in the Bible. You know, these two parables are about the second coming, and they're immediately followed by our Lord's discourse on the last judgment, which we're going to talk about later in the program. So in other words, after Jesus had in various ways admonished his disciples to prepare for the last judgment, he described it to them. And the context is manifestly clear. You'd either have to be an imbecile or a PhD with a political agenda to be able to miss it. So let's look at the parable in question from Matthew 25, that version, beginning with the, tra the transition from the wise and foolish virgins. He tells the wise and foolish virgin story, and then in verse 13, he says, Watch, therefore, because you know not the day nor the hour. For even as a man going to a far country called his servants and delivered to them his goods. In other words, he's saying, Here's this parable about the, the wise and foolish virgins and the lamp of faith and the, uh, and the oil of works. And so watch, because it's just like this. All right? <clears throat> he says, okay, so to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and to everyone according to his proper ability. And immediately he took his journey. Now he that had received the five talents went his way and traded with the same and gained other five. And in like manner, he that had received the two gained other two. But he that had received the one went away and hid his Lord's money in the earth. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and reckoned with them. And he that had received five talents coming brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou didst deliver to me five talents. Behold, I have gained other five over and above. His Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will set thee over many things. 
Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And to the servant who, having received two talents, came back with four talents, their Lord spoke in like manner. But he that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I know that thou art a hard man. And being afraid, I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Behold, here thou hast that which is thine. So he calls him a hard man. In other words, he's, he's hard to satisfy, that he's hard to reckon with, deal with. So his excuse is really an accusation. He's saying, it's because of you that I failed to increase the talent. But, you know, the, the Lord sees through it. Then the Lord answering said, Wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I was a hard man. Thou oughtest therefore to have committed my money to the bankers, and at my coming I should have received my own with usury. Out of thy own mouth I judge thee. In other words, the unprofitable servant's excuse slash accusation is actually his own condemnation. Take ye away therefore the talent from him, and give it to him that hath ten, for everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall abound. But from him that hath not, that also which he seemeth to have shall be taken away. And the unprofitable servant cast ye into the exterior darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we're going to unpack the meaning of that, the legitimate meaning, when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the parable of the talents and comparing the uh, exegesis, the traditional exegesis of this passage of Scripture with the rather novel um, interpretation tweeted out by Father Martin the other day. Now, it is because of this parable that the English word talent has come to mean gift, you know, or aptitude or ability. Uh, but in the ancient word, uh, Father Martin's correct, uh, talenton, a talent, uh, was had a different meaning. It was, in fact, a unit of weight, about 71 pounds, I understand. Therefore, a talent of gold would be an immense sum of money. Five talents would be more than 350 pounds. Okay, now think about that. What, what person is going to give a servant that kind of, you know, ridiculously large sum of money and then leave on a trip? Okay, but we remember, this is a parable. It's an allegorical story. It's meant to uh, arrest our attention and challenge our expectations. So everything about it signifies something. So in this parable, the talents, right, these ridiculous sums of money, are meant to represent the immense value of God's gifts to us. So both our natural gifts and then his infinitely more valuable spiritual gifts. So the man who delivered the, the talents to his servants represents our Lord. Uh, the talents are the natural gifts that are given to us uh, by, you know, God as our creator. And the graces that as our redeemer, Jesus left with us before he returned to the Father, before he left for a far country, okay? The talents signify our natural, physical, intellectual, uh, environmental gifts, right? So life and health and beauty and memory and understanding, our fortune, family, all of those things. And then the, the, the supernatural gifts are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the graces, sanctifying grace, actual grace, and the means of grace, yes, prayer and, and the sacraments, all the sacraments, but especially the Holy Eucharist. Now, all of these gifts, natural and supernatural, are riches that are given to us and of which we are to make good use. We can trade with them, as it says in the parable, by using them for the glory of God and for the salvation of our own souls. 
So the first point is, all these gifts belong to God, and we're merely the stewards of them. And Almighty God distributes his gifts in different measure, as he pleases. And therefore, he doesn't require an equal return from all, but only a good will and a real effort to serve him and advance his glory. As he says in Luke 12, unto whom much is given, of him much shall be required. Right? When our Lord comes again as judge. So it follows that of him who has received less, less will be required. Although you'll notice that the servant with the two talents, who gained another two, received all the same signs of approbation as the one with five who gained five more. Both made good use of their gifts. And so by corresponding with grace and performing good works, we, you know, uh, likewise merit an increase of grace. The ultimate reward that's given to the faithful uh, servant of God is so great in that, you know, he says, because you've been faithful in a few things, I'll put you over many. Even that immense sum of money that he gave him is like nothing comp- compared to the reward that he has in store. The just man has a share in the eternal glory and majesty of our Lord Jesus, whom he served faithfully on earth. And he will receive, as our Lord himself says in Luke 6, good measure and pressed down and shaken together. In other words, whatever our capacity for receiving reward, it's going to be filled to the brim. Now, the unprofitable servant, on the contrary, did not correspond with grace, made no use of it, used his natural gifts only uh, in the service of the world, So his faith was a dead faith, without love, without zeal. And he excused himself by pleading that God is is hard. The commandments are too difficult to keep. And what he's he's asking of us is impossible to give. Now, this, this lecture that he gives to the master and the excuses didn't profit him anything. They didn't help because the very fact that knowing that God's judgments are severe should have made him uh, exert himself to keep the commandments. If he'd corresponded with the grace that he'd received, he would have merited further grace and would have been praised and rewarded in precisely the same way as as the others who profited more. But he was slothful. He didn't profit by grace, and he lost what grace he did have, as we see with lukewarm Christians, yes, even priests, even New Testament scholars, who wind up losing the faith itself. And what happens? He's thrust out of the kingdom where there's you know, into the exterior darkness of hell. Now, a parable is an allegorical story, like I said, so everything has a deeper meaning. So you look at what, what does Professor Reed unlock regarding the profundity of the parable? She would have it that the rich man represents a rich man, and the money represents money, and the prophets represent prophets, and the lazy servant who did nothing with his gifts is the real hero, because obviously Jesus is teaching us that capitalism is evil. Therefore, the rich man's the real villain because he only cares about profits. In fact, his punishment of the unprofitable servant shows that rich people don't care about the poor. Wow, case closed. And this is grade A, 100% nonsense. The rich man represents our Lord. The talents are his gifts and graces, the profit or lack thereof, what use we make of them. But what about the bankers? The rich man chastises the unprofitable servant for not placing the money with the bankers so that he would at least return it with interest. What does that represent? Well, I I suspect for Dr. Reed and Father Martin, the bankers are bankers. But according to the fathers of the church, placing the talents with the bankers is a reference to almsgiving. 
that God's bankers are the poor. Bishop Necht says alms are a safe investment and bring in the highest interest, for God rewards them with an internal recompense, eternal recompense. Therefore, in direct contradiction to Professor Reed's interpretation, the unprofitable servant's punishment doesn't represent the rich man's lack of care for the poor, but his own. So once again, she's, she's missed the point by 180 degrees. Right? There, there are three main lessons to be learned from this parable. And the first, the one that I consider most important, is that faith alone is not sufficient for salvation. Salvation is won by cooperating with God's grace through good works. Can't do it alone, okay? But you need, that, uh, you need to cooperate. At the judgment, every Christian is going to have to give an account for the use that he's made of his gifts, natural and supernatural. The unprofitable servant was called wicked and was condemned simply because he'd left undone what he ought to have done, which is the point of our Lord's discourse on the last judgment, which is, you know, immediately follows this parable. And number three, that God is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We are his servants. And God is the most gracious Lord, for he gives his servants more grace as they need it, and rewards them with everlasting happiness. So how do we apply this? Everything you have is a gift of God, a talent committed to your charge. Even your good works are not really yours, because without God's grace, you can do nothing meritorious. Only your sins are quite your own. Do not, therefore, boast of your understanding, your health, your riches, but be humble and remember that you will one day have to give an account of them. And St. Paul asks the question, What hast thou thou hast not received? It's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And if thou hast received, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now, here's a challenge for you. Now, one can scarcely make it through a day without using the personal pronouns like I, me, and mine, so I, I wouldn't suggest that you even try. However, you can make a resolution not to say one word today in your own praise. Just that. Just for today, refrain from tooting your own horn and realize that any good that we do comes from God and then thank him for it. Now, as I mentioned before, the parable of the talents is in the context of two whole chapters of Matthew's gospel devoted to our Lord's teaching on the final judgment and the reckoning that will be required of each of us. And this is made explicit in the very next passage of the gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel, which is Matthew 25, 31 through 46 which is on the final judgment. It says, After Jesus had admonished his disciples to prepare for the last judgment, he described it to them in these words. When the Son of Man shall come in his majesty and all his angels with him, then shall he sit upon the seat of his majesty, and all nations shall be gathered together before him, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd separateth the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king shall say to them that shall be on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, possess the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the just answer him, saying, Lord, when have we done these things to thee? The king shall answer and say to them, Amen, I say to you, as long as you have done it to one of these, my least brethren, you did it to me. 
Then shall he say to them on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me not to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me not to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? Then he shall answer them, Amen, I say to you, as long as you did it not to one of these least ones, neither did you do it to me. And these shall go into everlasting punishment, but the just into life everlasting. So, talking about the seat of his majesty, the judgment seat. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, like a shepherd does when he pens up the animals at night. And the, the gentle and docile and patient and harmless sheep are taken as a figure for the just, whereas the wild and unruly and unclean goats are the type of the wicked. If you've ever been on a farm, you know what I'm talking about. Now, <laughs> this separation of the evil from the good will be made by the angels of God, as we uh, um, learned about in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. But then he says uh, the, the just will be on his right hand, the sheep. That's the place of honor in the Bible, to be on the right hand. And he also says, come ye blessed of my father. And he styles them blessed because the father has called them through his son to be heirs of his kingdom and showered blessings and graces on them. And there's some important contrast to be made between the sheep and the goats and how it ties into that parable of the talents that just preceded it. And we'll get to that when we return with lots more right here on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you with us. Stick around. And we'll be right back after these messages. Okay, welcome back. Final round here. Uh, No-nonsense Catholic. We're talking about now the commentary of the final judgment discourse from Matthew 25. Our Lord has just told us what's going to happen at the end of all things, separating the sheep from the goats. So the judgment at the end of the world is going to be presided over by our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Redeemer will then be our judge. Now, I had the the honor, the, the wonderful opportunity, the privilege to um, go to confession last night. And I'm, you know, I don't understand Catholics who are reluctant to go to confession. I mean, I know what it's like to not want to have to go in there and accuse yourself of the same stupid stuff you constantly fall into. But, you know, I've, as reluctant as I've ever been, I've certainly never been, uh, you know, I've always been uh, pleased as punch. You know, I've, I've never been sorry to go to confession. I've always been, you know, it's always been a blessing. Um, and I bring this up simply because when you go into the confessional, and our, the priest is there in persona Christi, and Jesus is there present as your Redeemer in the sacrament, that you're being judged at a tribunal of pure mercy. And so that's your choice. You can, you can go to this tribunal of pure mercy, or you can wait until the end of all things and face a tribunal of pure justice. Right? That's, that's your choice. Uh, the Son of God came into the world the first time in poverty, and in lowliness, but when he comes again to judge us, he's going to come in power and glory and majesty. And then those will tremble who did not believe in him. 
or those who have despised his commandments or his church or his sacraments. Um, the judgment's going to be general. St. Paul says in Hebrews, it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. So what, what's with this general judgment? If you're already judged after you, as soon as you die, you want, and the point is that everyone, even though they've been judged privately, they're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and be judged together in the open. And the divine judge is going to make it equally known <clears throat> the good works of the just and the evil deeds of the wicked so that the former may publicly receive their merited, well-merited praise and reward and the latter may be put to shame that men and angels may know and confess the justice of the divine judge. See, people go into hell with their eyes open and the one thing they're not going to be able to say is that's not fair. That's the point of the general judgment. And the law by which we will be judged is that of the first commandment, the greatest commandment. To love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. And that contains in it all the other commandments. And so the one who, for the love of our Lord, has, according to his ability, done good to his fellow men and practiced real love of neighbor that springs from a love of God, is going to be rewarded, just as if he had done it for our Lord himself. He makes it very explicit. But the person who hasn't performed works of charity or has not performed them in a state of grace or not for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to stand condemned because such a one has neither true love nor living faith. So therefore, we we're, will be judged not only for the evil that we've done, but for the good that we failed to do. And that sentence will be publicly pronounced. And it'll be twofold. To the just will be adjudged everlasting life, and the unjust will be banished from the vision of God. They'll be banished to hell. The just will go to God, that's heaven, live forever in his sight, enjoy the perfect union with him that fills them with inconceivable glory. And then the punishment of hell, which is again twofold. First, the damned are cursed and rejected by God. They're deprived of his vision. And, you know, the possession of which alone is, is eternal happiness. And then they're going to suffer in, you know, what he, Jesus describes as a fire unquenchable and in the company of devils. You know, the punishment of the damned is going to be just as unending as the happiness of the just. I said we should make a comparison. It's a comparison of the two sentences that shows how one's the opposite of the other. Jesus says, come ye blessed of my father, versus depart from me, ye cursed. So he doesn't say, not you who've been cursed of my father, because it's the sinner himself, not God that is the author of his fate. And he says, possess ye the kingdom versus uh, go into everlasting fire. Well, I don't think that needs any elaboration. But he says about the kingdom, he says, uh, enter the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or, or versus the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You notice he doesn't say that the everlasting fire was prepared for you in the case of the wicked, because God only created hell for the devils. God, as St. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And, and hell wasn't prepared from the beginning of creation, but only after the fall of the angels. And then finally, we get around to the fact that I brought up first of all with the parable of the talents, which is that faith alone cannot save. 
In the parable of the virgins, uh, our Lord taught us very plainly that the oil of good works is necessary in addition to the lamp of faith. And he related the parable of the talents then that we've talked about today for the sole purpose of showing us that the only person that can be saved is the one that uses the gifts and graces that have been given to him by God for the practice of works pleasing to God. You know, it's, it's habitually acting in a way that pleases God that we call virtue. Now, in the account of the last day, finally, that we closed with, our Lord tells us that the judgment, at the judgment, rather, those who do not practice works of mercy will be condemned. And that only good works done in a state of grace, we know, can claim the eternal reward of heaven. Right? Because both sides say, oh, didn't we say Lord, Lord? Now, let me be clear. Catholics do not believe that we can work our way to heaven, which would be salvation by works alone, (laughs) which is every bit as silly as believing in salvation by faith alone, right? Which we also do not believe. Our Lord's teaching is clear that we can do nothing apart from him. But it is equally clear that good works are necessary for salvation. Like I said, Matthew devotes two entire chapters to this teaching wherein Jesus reiterates it in every possible way, so as not to be misunderstood, presumably. St. James emphasizes our Lord's teaching most explicitly in the second chapter of his epistle, verse 24, see how a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's about as clear as you can get. In fact, the only place in the Bible where faith alone appear together, the words not by are right in front of them. It's almost inconceivable to me. (laughs) Inconceivable. (laughs) <laughs> almost inconceivable that you keep using that word. Uh, it is almost inconceivable to me that, that, that this kind of half-hearted and apathetic notion that faith alone, just believing in Jesus is enough to, to uh, you know, sufficient for salvation. It, it's amazing that that could ever have been successfully represented as the doctrine of Christ, especially if people were encouraged to read the Bible. And it's similarly there's a hard word, similarly inconceivable, that a Catholic New Testament scholar would turn the parable of the talents into some kind of Marxist propaganda, or that it would be encouragingly tweeted by a Catholic priest. And then, once again, I remember the words of St. Paul. For there shall be a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and will indeed turn away their hearing from the truth and be turned unto fables. And that's no nonsense. All right, we just have a couple of moments left, and I mentioned um, Father Paul O'Sullivan's booklets on purgatory, Read Me or Rue It, and How to Avoid Purgatory. I recommend them to you. And in the last moments here, I'd just like to go over a little list of things that you can do to avoid purgatory purgatory, or at the very least, lessen your time there. So number one, in every prayer that you say, every Mass you hear, every communion you receive, every good work you perform, have the express intention of imploring God to grant you a holy death and no purgatory. You know, our Lord wants us to to pray with confidence and perseverance. And so, like Father Father Sullivan says, surely God will hear that kind of prayer. Number two, always wish to do God's will. And this is the funny thing, you know, to, to, to do God's will or to want to do God's will. It is in every sense the absolute best thing for you. When you do or seek anything that's not God's will, that's when you suffer. 
So say fervently, therefore, each time you recite the Our Father, Thy will be done. Put something into those words. Number three, you accept all the suffering, sorrows, pains, and disappointments of life, big or small, uh, uh, you know, loss of goods, loss of health, the, the death of those close to you, heat and cold, sunshine and rain, all of it is coming from God and coming from the hand of a loving Father. Bear them patiently. This is what Jesus means when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is poverty of spirit. To bear patiently as coming from God, all the things that happen to you, and the difficult things you accept as a penance for your sins. And of course, you can use all your efforts to, to ward off trouble and pain, but you can't avoid them altogether. And when you can't, bear them, as he says here, manfully. The word virtue comes from the, the, the Latin root vir, which means man. Manfully, virtuously. Right? Impatience and revolt make suffering worse, longer, and more difficult to bear. So be patient. Number four, Christ's life and actions are so many lessons for us to imitate. It is not for nothing that the imitation of Christ is the most popular Christian book after the Bible. And the greatest act of our good Lord was his passion. And as he had a passion, each one of us has a passion. I think sometimes that our church is passing through a passion at this time. And it consists of the, of the sufferings and the labors of every day. You know, I know that it's not popular to say this right now, but the fact of the matter is that uh, the penance that God imposed on man for sin was to gain his bread in the sweat of his brow. So we do our work and we accept its disappointments and its hardships and bear our pains in union with the passion of Christ. And remember that you gain more merit from a little pain than years and years of pleasure. Number five, forgive all injuries and offenses, for in proportion as we forgive others, God forgives us. Number six, avoid mortal sins and deliberate venial sins and break off your bad habits. If you're able to do that, and it's going to be relatively easy to satisfy God's justice for sins of frailty, you know, avoiding sins against charity and chastity, especially whenever or whether in thought, word, or deed, for these sins and the expiation for them are the reason why so many souls are detained uh, in purgatory for so long. Um, if you're afraid of doing much, do, you know, doing big things, do lots of little things. Do everything in your power for the holy souls in purgatory. Um, you know, go to confession and go to mass and receive frequent communion. And if possible, make visits to the Blessed Sacrament, even if it's only for a few minutes. It's an easy way of obtaining grace. Just spend a few minutes saying, in his presence, saying, My Jesus, mercy. My Jesus, have pity on me, a sinner. I love you. Give me a happy death. These are ways to avoid purgatory, and they are no nonsense. It's been great being with you. I look very much forward to next week. Uh, it's coming back, same time, same station, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'll be looking for you. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family.